Well, good morning, family. It is so good to be together. Well, as we begin this new year in 2019, I felt that I would take us on a bit of, our, of a departure from our normal, typical pattern of taking a passage or a book of the Bible and working our way through it over a period of weeks or months. Rather, for the next five weeks, I want to take us back and to remind us of our roots. To review some old words, we just sang about ancient words, which really is talking about Scripture. I'm going to do a little departure this morning and look at some old words that are words of the church and understand why they still matter. It's quite difficult for us today, honestly, to imagine the state of the church in the Middle Ages. Personally, I only have a vague memory of it. I was quite young at the time. <laughs> Seriously, the <laughs> a thousand years after Christ, the, the church was in a mess. The Roman church exercised a totalitarian control over the Western church through the Pope and the councils. The people themselves in churches and much of the priesthood as well was kept really ignorant of what God's Word says. Instructed simply in the teachings and the customs and the traditions of the church. The politics of the Roman church and the politics of Nations were bound up together, inextricably tied and bound together in relationships of corruption and conflict and intrigue. Wealthy people could purchase positions in the church for a price. You wonder, why would somebody want a position in the church? Well, it's all about power, it's all about prestige. It's all about wealth. Indulgences were sold to the people through the church. Literally, forgiveness of sins was for sale. That was the church in the year 1000. Here at the Chapel of the Lake, our roots, as truly all Protestant churches, our roots go back some 500 years to a period I'm sure you've heard of called the Reformation. The Reformation is a period generally referred to in the 1500s, the 16th century. It was a protest movement that sought to reform those and to fix those problems, those abuses, those, to correct those in the church. Ultimately, you know, it led to Protestants breaking away from the Catholic Church. The Reformation was a broad movement. It was orchestrated by God, not by any human, one human or group. God raised up unique leaders, men like Martin Luther and William Tyndale and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and John Huck. And, and John Knox and so many. Dozens and dozens of them God raised up in different countries, different places 
even different times. While we speak of the Reformation, and, and generally folks refer to the 16th century for the Reformation, it actually began centuries before that. The, the seeds of the Reformation began to sprout even back in the, in the 11th century, in the, in the years that followed the Reformation. Theologians and churches coined some phrases, five of them, that summarized the heartbeat of the Reformers and that crystallized five core truths that those Reformers considered worth dying for. Those phrases are called often the five solas. They're Latin phrases, each one of which begins with the Latin word sola, which means only or alone, just like we say the word solo is to sing by yourself or you fly a plane solo by yourself. Solo or sola, which by the way, you're free to think of the irony of that, that uh, they use the word sola only or alone to describe five things. But that's okay. <laughs> you're allowed to laugh at that and wonder about it. But they're really, it's, it's not a, it's, it's not a misstatement. For these, these five things are each important alone, but they are not alone in their importance. It's like a, uh, a line is infinite, but a line, while it's infinite, isn't all, all there is. There's infinitely more than one line. And these things are all significant in their own right. Five solas. They're these. Let me just go through them very quickly. There is sola scriptura is the first one. Scripture alone. There is sola gratia, grace, grace alone. There is sola fide, fide is faith alone. There is solus Christus. Solus, by the way, is just another form of the word sola. And it's solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, deo gloria, the glory of God alone. So over the next five weeks, we'll take one week and look at each one of these and try to understand what they mean and why they are incredibly significant still today, even though they are ancient words of the church. And these particular words you don't find most of them at least, in this form in Scripture. The first sola, Scripture alone, is what we're going to look at this morning. And it has been called the material principle of the Reformation. The foundation upon which the other truths of the Reformation and the other truths, quite frankly, of our faith rest. How do we know something is true? It's an old question. Actually, Pilate, you recall, asked that. What is truth? How do we know what is true? Who or what is the arbiter of truth? When there is a question, when there is a dissension, when there is an argument, who decides what is right and wrong? Who speaks for God? If God is the ultimate truth, who is it that speaks for God? Is it the Pope? 
Is it the priest? Is it the church? That was a central question of the Reformation. And the Reformers answered that question with sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Only the Bible. The Bible alone speaks with authority because it is the Word of God. That was the answer of the Reformers. Let me just take us through just a glimpse of some of the Reformers and through the ages to see how this is indeed the fact in those years of the Reformers. We go back to those early seeds, the early times of the Reformation. The year was 1170. One of the earliest Reformers, this guy in France named Peter Walden, excuse me, Waldo or Walden, depending on how it's translated. He, he was a wealthy Frenchman who sought to have the Bible translated from Latin into his own language. In the course of studying the Scriptures, he became convinced of the absolute importance and value of Scripture as the authority. It is the Word of God which speaks to us. And as he began to study the Scripture, he began to preach the Scriptures that this is the authority of God, not the church, not the Pope, it's the Scriptures. And it began really a movement of lay preachers that went out and began to preach throughout southern France and into the Alps between France and Italy and into northern Italy and into Switzerland. His followers came to be called the Waldenses as they spoke against the false teachings and the abuses and the practices in the Catholic Church and to teach the authority of Scriptures. They grew in numbers and they persevered over the next several hundred years despite intense persecution being hunted down and persecuted and executed by the thousands by the Roman Church. About 200 years later, in the 1300s, over in England, a scholar and a theologian named John Wycliffe also took a stand against the authority and the teachings of the Catholic Church, believing as well that the Scriptures are the authority by which all other authorities and all traditions and all men are to be measured. He wrote, Englishmen learn Christ's law best in English. Moses heard God's law in his own tongue. So did Christ's apostles. And so John Wycliffe set about in 1380, he set about to translate the Bible from Latin into English, which you've already figured out is where Wycliffe Bible Translators gets their name from this early reformer. Not that long later, a couple of decades later, a man came up in Bohemia and around 1400, at the age of 34, John Huss in Bohemia, which is today modern Czech Republic, he became the rector or the head of Prague University in Prague. He also became the preacher at Bethlehem Chapel. And John Huss promoted the authority and sufficiency of the Scriptures. And he began to speak against the indulgences and the corruption in the church. 
he had come across the writings of John Wycliffe and was influenced by him, and he preached the Scriptures in the language of the people. In 1450, John Huss was condemned to be burned at the stake as a heretic. A week before his death, he wrote a letter to the university authorities at Prague. And he said, Be confident, I have not revoked nor abjured a single article. I refuse to renounce unless what the council charged against me shall be proved false from the Scriptures. What they say that I said, unless it can be proved false by the Scriptures, I won't take back a word. Scripture, he said, is the sole authority. Sometime later, 1517, perhaps the most well-known voice of the Reformation, Martin Luther, a young Catholic monk, in the year 1517, published 95 theses, 95 complaints, grievances against the Catholic Church, which you recall he nailed to the door of the chapel of Wittenberg. A number of years later, April 18, 1521, at the Diet of Worms, a council was called together in Worms to question Martin Luther and try to get him to renounce his errors, Luther said at that meeting, he said, unless I am convinced by the testimonies of Scripture or by evident reason, for I believe neither the Pope nor councils alone, since it is established that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am the prisoner of the Scriptures cited by me and my conscience have been taken captive by the Word of God. Here I stand. If I can do no other, God help me. Amen. By God's grace, God helped Luther to escape execution. And he became a, if not the, major figure and major voice in that century of the great Protestant Reformation. About the same time as Luther, over in England, there was a man named William Tyndale. William Tyndale was responding. He also was one who was convinced of the authority of Scripture. Scripture alone. He was responding to some Catholic clergy who were arguing in favor of the church and the popes and the councils. And to him, Tyndale replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws and if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scriptures than you do. He said the Scriptures alone are the authority. And it is a crime that the, the people in the church, the, the believers, don't understand the Scriptures. They don't know the Scriptures. And so he set about, he made it his life's work to get the Scriptures into the hands of people. He set about again translating the Bible into English and spent his life spreading copies of the Scriptures throughout all of Europe. He was eventually betrayed and charged with heresy, tied to a stake, strangled, and then his body burned. In the half century from the Waldenses to Luther and to Tyndale, and Calvin and all those other reformers, in that half century, 500 years, 
tens upon tens of thousands of believers were brutally persecuted and or executed for declaring Scripture alone is our authority. If you don't know much about those days of persecution and wonder, was it really that bad? I commend you to read Fox's Book of Martyrs if you've never read it. It's a classic work. John Fox gives much insight into the persecutions of those days as well as going back all the way to the persecutions of believers beginning with the first apostles. So, these reformers believed that Scripture alone is the authority. Question, if Scripture alone is the authority, does Scripture alone teach Scripture alone? Can we find this teaching which they took a stand upon, this belief which they said this is foundational, can you find that teaching in Scripture? Well, you won't find the phrase, Scripture alone is the authority in Scripture. However, I encourage you this morning, if you would, take your Bible out, because I can't stand up here and flap my gums forever without opening the Scripture and looking to it as our authority. Second Timothy chapter 3. There are many verses we could go to in the Scriptures to look at the authority of the Scripture and the value of the Scripture. But this is certainly one of the clearest. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. These verses are rich and we could spend a few hours unpacking them, but I'm going to simply narrow it down to three things that I want us to notice this morning in verses 16 and 17 here of 2 Timothy 3. The first is that it says the Scripture is breathed out by God. Or some of your translations, if you have a NIV or some others, it might say it is inspired. It's why we call the Scriptures the Word of God. Because the, the, the Scriptures are not just a book of writings of a bunch of holy men who got together and started you know, bantering about different thoughts and ideas and then said, oh, that's good, let's write that one down. And we'll call that Scripture. It's not it. It's not a book of man's ideas or traditions. It is the Word of God. Even though God worked through human authors, He did it this way as the Apostle Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1. Above all, he says you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. It's not people or a prophet or a preacher who says, here's what I think, and he puts it down and says it's from God. It's not um, the prophet's own interpretation. He goes on, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, But men spoke from God, capital G, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
God, it's, he says, breathed out His Word through the prophets into the very words of Scripture. The Scripture is the Word of God. Secondly, these verses show us here that because the Scriptures are God's Word, the text says they are profitable. They are, some of your translations say, they are useful. They are, the Scriptures are, in other words, the right place to go. They are the right tool for the job. The right place to look to if we want to know what does God say. If we want to, as the passage goes on, if we want to know where do I find truth, the Scriptures are profitable, they're useful, they're the right tool for teaching truth. They are useful, they are profitable for, it goes on to say, for uh, reproof or for, in other words, for uh, pointing out error and sin. If you, if you want to know what's right and what's wrong, the Scripture, he says, is profitable, it's useful, it's the right tool to say this is right, this is wrong. And the Scriptures have spoken as God speaks through the Scriptures and very clearly He does not stutter. This is sinful. This is good. It goes on. It's, the Scriptures are useful for teaching or doctrine, for reproof. It's also for correction. It is the Scriptures which are powerful in correcting us, in fixing us. Hebrews chapter 4, the Word of God is alive, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, able, it says, to go in and do surgery in our insides. To change us from the inside out. And he says, and it's useful for training in righteousness to train us how to live rightly. Scripture is the Word of God because it's inspired and because it's the Word of God, it is, it is the authority. It is the place to go for, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and training. And Along those lines, he says then that the Scripture is also, thirdly, it is sufficient. He goes on as we see, he says that the man of God may be complete. Complete means complete. Thoroughly equipped. Completely equipped for every good work. He uses a lot of words there that define things. Totally complete. For every, equipped for every good work. In other words, if I can say, whatever we truly need in order to know God and in order to serve Him and in order to live rightly, whatever we need, God has provided it in His Word. That's what that verse says. The Bibles don't tell us everything there is to know, but what it's saying is it tells us everything we need to know for faith and godliness. The Bible, the Scripture, is the Word of God. It's inspired, it's profitable, it's sufficient, it's authoritative. If we ever want to know what does God think when we take human tradition, human ideas, human thoughts, and we take those and we 
put them beside the Word of God and make them equal to the Word of God, or we make the Word of God subservient to human tradition, thoughts, or ideas. If we ever want to know what does God think about that, all we have to do is go to the words of Jesus. You'll probably recall that this was one of the things that Jesus was constantly pointing out to the, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews. Mark chapter 7, Jesus denounces the Pharisees for this very thing. He says to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. See, they rejected the authority of the Scripture not by denying it, but by replacing it. They took their own ideas, their own traditions, their own other things, and while they claimed the Bible as authority and as God's Word, they supplanted these other things above it. And Jesus said, you have, you have rejected the command of God devastating rebuke of these leaders. That is exactly why these reformers said this matters. Only the Word of God is the authority, not the traditions of men, not the words of men, not the, you know, not the teachings and of, of a church or of a group, but only what God has said in the Scripture. Why does this matter today? Or I guess I should say we can get why it matters if God's Word is the authority, but how does this really impact you and me today? We get why that was a big deal back in the 16th century when there were people speaking for Christ saying, you know, the Word of God is the Word of God, but we don't need that anymore, really so much. What you need to do is just listen to what we say. And while they are opposing the teaching of the Word of God and persecuting and killing people who are trying to say, no, this is the Word of God and this is the authority, we can get why it matters then, but why does it matter to you and me in 21st century where last time I checked, at least so far, nobody is persecuting us for preaching the Word of God or believing it. Well, three things I just want to point out in terms of really application of this this morning. First is that this matters, sola scriptura matters because we need to be mindful of compromise. The reality is that in, under the label of Christendom, those who wear the name of Christ and claim the name of Christ, there are abundant voices today which attack the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. And I say of compromise because typically these threats are not overt, they are subtle. You know, there are two ways you can destroy a house. 
Actually, there's more than that, but I'll just name two. One way you can destroy a house is dynamite. It's very fast and it gets a lot of attention. But you can also destroy a house by infecting it with termites. It takes a lot longer and it goes, it can go unnoticed until it's too late. The results of each can be the same. Total destruction of a house. We need to understand that those who attack the authority and sufficiency of Scripture go to work like termites in the church. Here's a few of the contemporary challenges to the authority of God's Word. You'll see it in among liberals in Christendom. Liberals who use language that seem to affirm the Scriptures, and yet what they do is rob it of any real authority and value. They will use phrases like this, Well, the Bible is God's Word. But it's not God's words. Big difference. They will say, well, yeah, the Bible contains God's Word. See, and in those things, what they mean is that because of that, we can say the Bible is God's Word, but since it only contains His Word, we can ignore the parts that we don't like because we'll say that part isn't His Word. Or we can say that, well, what God really meant to say here, I know it reads like this, but that's not what He means, and we can make it say whatever we want. It robs the Scriptures of authority by saying that it's God's Word, but not really His words. Whereas we saw in Second Timothy, God has breathed it out. He's breathed out His words into these words. This is His Word. Our modern culture is a threat. Modernists, those who look at the church and say, you know what, we got a problem with the church. The church is out of date. We need to bring the church into the 21st century. And so, what they say is that the Scripture needs to be understood in a way that makes sense to a modern mindset. It needs to be brought into you know, sync with modern sensibilities. And so whether the subject is homosexuality or the subject is gender or the subject is marriage or the subject is abortion or the subject is morality or evolution or psychology or whatever, what they say is that we are to bend the Scriptures to match accepted cultural thinking and norms. They view, in other words, the Bible not really as the Word of God, but as the Word of men that is like our church constitution, which we can say, you know what? We need to change the constitution. We need to make a few adjustments here or there. All in favor? Aye. Done. And they think God's Word can be done like that. But Sola Scriptura says, God has spoken. God did not stutter in what God said. We are not free to change and amend. Also, modern, in modern threats, there are cults. Typically, they say the Bible is the Word of God. But... <laughs> But it was corrupted somewhere along the line and you need us to tell you where it's wrong and to tell you what's right. Or the Bible is the Word of God, but 
you really can't understand it. What you really need is our leader so-and-so or our publication so-and-so to tell you what the Bible means because you can't really understand it for yourself. In our modern day, Catholicism still says, by the way, the Catholic Church still says the Bible is the Word of God, but the popes, the church, and tradition speaks with authority equal to the Word of God. Also in our day, there are threats among charismatics and new Calvinists and others in the evangelical camp where there are a couple of teachings common in there which I believe are termites that eat away at this foundation of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. One of those is that God is speaking, still speaking today through prophecy and prophets. Even though many of them try to reinterpret prophecy so that you don't have to have the Old Testament standard of absolute perfection and infallible prophecy. And if they're if they fail, if anything of the prophecy is wrong, take them out and stone them. That's the Old Testament standard for a prophet. It kind of narrowed the field of folks who wanted to claim to be a prophet. <laughs> there are many in Christendom today who say that there are, God is speaking through prophets in their churches. And what they do is undermine the authority of Scripture and open the door to all kinds of error. Also, there are those who today in evangelical circles who place a great emphasis, an undue emphasis on spiritual experience and direct communication from the Holy Spirit, emphasizing that over and outside of even the guidance of the Word of God, which our primary guidance is that God, working through the Holy Spirit, guides us through the Word of God, through the Scripture. We don't need other revelation we have the Word of God. So understand, those are, those are threats that are very real under the tent of those who name the name of Christ. And we need to maintain vigilance in our commitment to the authority of the Scripture alone as the Word of God. Secondly, and I'll be very quickly here on these last two points. Secondly, this truth should move us to mission. As the Reformers read the Scriptures, what they discovered there was, was something they had not heard in the church. And that is that there is a God who loves us. And who loves us because of His grace, not because of our worth. And who desires to save us by His grace. And He saves us by His grace alone, through faith alone, not on the basis of any good works that we could do because we can never do enough. And He saves us through faith alone in Christ alone. Because as Scripture says, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. When they came to encounter the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, what they realized is, is that everybody needs to hear this. Everybody needs to know this. And they became ardent, passionate preachers of the good news of the Gospel that is found in the Word of God. And that is why they became so intent to get the Word of God into the hands of people. You need to know the good news of salvation. See, you and I, we have 
the good news of the Gospel here. We need to learn from them and see from them they were willing to give their lives for the sake of the Gospel. That ought to move us. Now, 500 years later, there are still billions of people in this world who have not heard of Jesus Christ. And we've been given a mandate, a mission from our Savior to be witnesses for Christ. So we need to be busy being faithful, sharing with our neighbor, our friend, our co-worker, our classmate. We need to be active in supporting in any way we can those who are going to places we cannot go, praying for them, supporting them with our finances and other ways. Get involved in the mission of the Gospel. The third way that this ought to impact us, this truth ought to impact us, is, well, let me say first, is that American believers today, we have a problem with the Word of God. Our problem is in very different, quite different than what it was in the Middle Ages, and yet it's quite the same. We don't have a political slash religious system that is threatening to persecute us if we read the Scriptures, own the Scriptures, talk about the Scriptures like the Reformers had. They had that problem. We don't. Nor do we have a problem with accessibility of getting the Word of God. In that day, in, in the day of the Reformers, the Scripture was in Latin, which almost nobody spoke. If you could find a copy, because copies were hard to find, because they were all hand-written, hand-printed, they were expensive, and you had to go places to find it, and then you had to learn Latin to read it, and, and uh, nobody was encouraging you to do it. Matter of fact, they were encouraging you not to do it. We've got Bibles all over the place. We have the Scriptures in many translations, and the, we, if you're like me, we've got, you know, I've got, Dozens around. And not, not only that, we've got them on our electronic devices. I've got, I don't know how many translations on here. And all kinds of helps to help me get the things I don't understand. Dictionaries, concordances, all kinds of things. All right at my fingertips. You've got the same. Those problems are very different than the problems they had. And yet our problem is almost the same. George Gallup, the American pollster and researcher, has stated our problem very bluntly. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. In the Middle Ages, in all of those centuries leading up to the Reformation, the issue was the people in the pews didn't know the Word of God. And what people say is, by and large, the people sitting in the pews in America don't know the Word of God. That should move us to say two things. First of all, God has spoken. That alone should be enough to motivate us to dig into Scripture. God has spoken! Wow. Find out what He says. And as we sang earlier in that little song, ancient words, the ancient words of Scripture have come to us through sacrifice. Tens of thousands of people during the Reformation paid with their blood. 
on their quest to get the Scriptures into the hands of people in their language. We have inherited that. And that should say, huh, this is a big deal. If it was that important to them, it ought to be that important to me. And so this year, as we begin a new year, I want to challenge you. If reading the Bible is not something that is a part of your lifestyle, a part of your habit, it ought to be. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this year, make a resolution. Not just a resolution, do it. Make a new habit of reading God's Word. Start somewhere. We have a reading plan. Every year we have one. This year, we're reading through the Old Testament prophets and Psalms and Proverbs. They're available out there in the foyer. If you're a newbie at reading Scripture, you might not want to start there. The Old Testament prophets can be a challenge. If you want something a little lighter and easier, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Aaron. Any of the leaders here will help you find something that suits you. But start digging into the Word of God. The difference between those who simply went and listened to a priest who talked about everything except the Word of God and those who come and sit in the pew and all their only exposure to Scripture is what some pastor says, flapping his gums on Sunday and you never check it out, the difference is really nil. It's no different. The Word of Keith Spa is not alive and powerful. The Word of God is. Read Scripture. Not, don't just read it. Study it. Join a Bible study. We got lots of them here at church. We got home groups. We got Bible studies. We got youth Bible studies. We got Bible studies for kids. Get in a Bible study. You got kids? Make sure your kids are learning God's Word. Teach it at home. Get your kids involved in Sunday school, children's church, Awana. Matter of fact, volunteer in Sunday school in Awana. I don't know if you've ever figured this out. If you haven't figured this out yet, let me tell you, the best way to learn is to teach. <laughs> we learn a lot more, a lot quicker that way. And lastly, let's not just be those who learn God's Word, but let's live it. I really don't think we need a lot more theologians. We really do need a lot more living examples of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, You've given to us Your Word. You have spoken. You have broken into this world with the truth, with Your words. We're so grateful for that because apart from Your words, we cannot know You. Apart from Your words, we, we do not know how we can come to You. Apart from Your words, we, we do not know what it is, how we ought to live in this life. Apart from Your words, we have no idea what is coming in the future, apart from Your Word, we, we do not know how to find hope, forgiveness of sin, eternal life. So Lord, we're so thankful for Your Word. Forgive us that we often take it for granted. We take it lightly. It, it's all around us and so we just view it as part of the furniture rather than as the Word of God, 
May we treasure it. May we learn it. May we read it. May You in Your grace work through Your Word to transform us. May we share Your Word so that those whom we know can hear from us Your Word that there is a God who loves them. There is forgiveness from sin. There is eternal life in Jesus. These things we ask in His name. Amen.